This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at new and recent films in theaters and elsewhere and compares them to well-loved and lesser-known films from days gone by. My name's Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter at the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris that you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And on this week's show, we hear that train a-coming, a-coming down the internets. It's Murder on the Orient Express and a lot of other locomotive-bound thrillers. So this is our 50th podcast, Stephen. It's so great to be back in the CKDU studios with you uh, after a few uh, uh, recordings in the uh, the Parrot uh, Pala Podcast Palace. That's right. The uh, You will not hear any squawks and squeaks in uh, in this week's show unless I make them myself. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I'm still pretty creaky. Um, but uh, yes, we are back in the, uh, the uh, lugubrious and salacious confines of CKDU FM uh, atop the Dalhousie Student Union Building. Uh, so uh, enjoy this uh, luxurious audio, audio quality that you will get throughout today's show. <laughs> now, we're talking about train movies, having gone to see the new version of Murder on the Orient Express. It, you know, as usual, I do a little bit of research before our podcast, and I thought about what are the famous, well-known train movies. Well, Stranger on a Train is probably the big one. Um, there's The Taking of Pelham 123. Yes. There are two versions of that. Uh, Brief Encounter. Uh, I thought of Before Sunrise, which starts and ends on a oh, train. Oh, that's true, yes. Uh, Wes Anderson's Darjeeling Limited, which I actually am quite fond of. Uh, the first 25 minutes of last year's Lion is set largely in a train station. And in India, Hugo set in a train station. Uh, more recently, you mentioned thrillers, and, uh, and most of these movies are thrillers. Uh, Unstoppable and Snowpiercer are great train movies. Uh, James Bond has a tradition of train movies. We from our we discussed well, some of this on yeah, our uh, From Russia with Love. Yeah, on our on our Bond podcast, but uh The Spy Who Loved Me and even the recent Spectre have prominent scenes in trains. Uh and Skyfall, the villain uses a subway train as a weapon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of movies where trains just play a, a, a prominent role without being like the center of the action. I'm thinking about a lot of westerns like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, um, High Noon. You're waiting huh. for that uh, train to come in with the, the villains aboard? Yep, yep. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, then, Blazing then Saddles. Blazing Saddles, The Wild <laughs> Bunch. Uh, you know, and then there are other movies like uh, Michael Mann's Heat starts with a train. Uh, there's one of the best parts of Fast Five has a train action sequence. Uh, the Last Station, which is about the love between Leo Tolstoy and his wife, that that has a train plays a, a key role there. And certainly, you know, from the title, you might suspect. Uh, there's one of my favorite 80s buddy cop movies called Running Scared has a great scene where there's a car chase on the L in Chicago, which ends with Jimmy Smith's limo smashing into a train. <laughs> uh, but yeah, trains have been you know part of cinema forever. And uh, going back to, well, the early history of cinema, and they tend to stand thematically for progress very much in American film like the Manifest Destiny. You know, we're going to go over out into the wild and we're going to, we're going to, you know, lay down tracks and we're going to bring civilization out there, you know, and all that kind of like presumptive colonialist stuff, which you get in, in a lot of British period dramas as well, Patched India and that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, there, it's, it's less with cars. It seems to be more about sexual freedom and rebellion with trains it's more like you know we're we're getting places and and as a as a society that seems to be the the underlying uh bedrock of it all well it was such a massive change in technology that the introduction of locomotive uh 
uh, travel. Uh, and uh, if you think about the very bedrock of movie history, what was the one of the first films that people paid admission to see? It was the Lumiere brothers' train arriving at a station. Yeah, there you and, go. Yeah. You know, which reportedly sent people running for the doors because they thought the train was going to come out of the screen, which... I find kind of a suspect anecdote, but um, <laughs> what, what the heck? Let's, uh-huh. let's go with that. And, and, and what was the first sort of American, I won't call it a feature, but one of the very first uh, American films to actually tell a story, um, you know, a, a, a fictional dramatic representation, and that was uh, The Great Train Robbery, directed by Edwin S. Porter, uh, working for Thomas uh, Edison, who later came to Nova Scotia as part of a traveling show, which was... Uh, called Wormwood's Dog and Monkey Theater, <laughs> which is where the uh, beloved and long-gone uh, Halifax Repertory Cinema got its name. Ah, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, it ties it all back to uh, the history of, of cinema. So, uh, you know, people were fascinated by trains. Uh, it kind of brought, well, you mentioned freedom. It certainly brought a sense of freedom to people living, you know, in the, the flyover states or the, I guess, the roll-through states as they were back then when, when uh, all of a sudden there was... Uh, I don't know how cheap it was, but at least read, ready, uh, fast transportation to the large centers from the, the rural heartland, which was a, a big change for people. And uh, and movies were just sort of fascinated with these giant lumbering uh, beasts of uh, metal and steam. And, and uh, you know, and to this day, they continue to provide fodder for films. Uh, it, it, you have the sense you're moving quickly, but you're confined in a space. It's, it's a, it's a, a strange, uh, kind of circumstance to be in. Um, you know, certainly there are lots of silent movies about it. Um, you mentioned strangers on a train, of course, uh, an even earlier, uh, Hitchcock film, uh, the lady vanishes takes place entirely on a train and, uh, Jodie Foster later updated it to a plane. <laughs> with with uh, slightly less uh, successful results, I can't. What was the? I can't remember the name of that movie. But was, oh yeah, um, yeah. I'm totally like blanking. Des- too. Anyway, that's yeah. <laughs> it's probably just as well. It but, probably is. We'll do our. Tell you what, we'll do a, a podcast on plane movies, and we'll come back. Yes, to exactly. It. We'll, when we get to planes, uh, and then eventually automobiles. Uh, which <laughs> we'll go back which, to automobiles. Which, yes, because we've already done automobiles. <laughs> yeah, we've done yeah. this in the wrong order. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but uh, but there is that that romance about trains that, that uh, no other form of uh, transportation seems to have. The, 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 there's kind of the idea of watching the countryside go by and the, the fact that, you know, there are sort of, uh, you know, there are bedrooms on trains, as we learned from uh, North by Northwest uh, and many other films. Uh, and, uh, you know, Murder on the Orient Express goes into that a little bit when we've got the one of the sort of um, rakier characters talking about the romance of traveling by rail and uh, anonymous encounters. And... Uh, in fact, I'm reminded of an Australian film, which I tried to find, uh, called uh, Warm Nights on a Slow-Moving Train, which is a thriller set on a train crossing uh, Australia, um, where a woman repeatedly boards a train using in different guises and having different affairs and things. But then, of course, it becomes a murder mystery along the way. But unfortunately, uh, that is uh, that has not been seen since the days of VHS. So uh, yeah. if anyone knows where I can nab a copy of that, I would love to see that. Uh, again, uh, basically all that YouTube has. To, there's a trailer on YouTube, and that's about it. But it mm. certainly made it look like something I'd want to see, see in full. But uh, I guess I guess the, the the film we're going to start with is a, a yet another return to one of the uh, 
one of the grand dramas of, of classic mystery, and that is Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, th- this is, doesn't feel much like a zeitgeist film. You know, I understand the visual power of trains in cinema, but, mm. but I mean, going back and doing a, a Agatha Christie uh, <laughs> adaptation, especially given there is an earlier one from 1974, I, I want to mention that in later on. Uh, I hadn't seen it before I saw the new version, but then I went back to watch it since since seeing the new version, since seeing the Kenneth Branagh version. And uh, the, the Christie adaptation I grew up with, with Death, was Death on the Nile with, um, uh, with Peter Ustinov as Hercule Poirot. Yes. And I, he, is, he is my guy. Ustinov is my guy when it comes to this character. <laughs> and I, he is implanted in my head as a result of having seen uh, Death on the Nile a number of times when I was a kid. But I certainly get the, the sort of structure of... Uh, these stories, Christie's uh, stories, and certainly it's it's repeated again here. Uh, you know, you've got the the Belgian, famous Belgian uh, sleuth, who but he's on a on a train, and there's been a murder, and he's traveling. They're, or they're all traveling from uh, from Istanbul through uh, Eastern Europe on its or Southern Europe on on the way to France, and uh, uh, and and basically. Yeah, I mean, this, I'm not really sure why um, Branagh felt this was material that he wanted to go back to and and revisit. It, it, he he tries to update it in some interesting ways. I, he definitely is a lot freer with the camera work. He's not working from that theory that that inside trains can be suspenseful and therefore we should stay in there and and ratchet up the claustrophobia as we're traveling through through landscapes. He's he, you know he's not taking the Snowpiercer effect here. No, he is totally like the camera swoops around the outside side of the train there's a chase sequence that goes down like a like um you know a, oh, the trestle the trestle the, yes. yeah under the train and then the final sequences no spoilers here folks but there are final sequences that take place outside like in front of the train and i'm not sure what all this was in aid of but uh <laughs> mostly trying to liven it up it, it felt like you know it's like he must have woken up one night uh Branagh, and said you know what i want to be hercule Poirot. i want to put on the belgian accent and i want to wear the most outrageous mustache that's ever been seen in cinema. And it is truly like a distraction. I, I had a hard time even paying attention to what he was saying because that mustache is so outrageous. Yeah, it's like a mustache on top of a mustache. <laughs> it, it's it's like his, his mustache has a beard or something. I, yeah. it's, it just, it's so unnerving like that uh, it, it really does. T- and I guess they just decided, well, we got to do something with, new with the mustache. And I'm not sure why uh, <laughs> because, you know, he's, I mean, I think in the books, even, he's described as being kind of fussy and that he has a very, uh, you know, um, exquisitely trimmed mustache, but it's usually just like a thinly waxed yeah. mustache with maybe maybe a touch of a goatee under the under the lower lip or something like that. But but here it's like, you know, he's, he's got a he's got a sort of a soul patch the size of a, you know, like an, an Edsel uh, grill and, and this kind of quadruple winged mustache thing. I, Whatever. I, I guess maybe he saw something like it in an old photograph and thought that would work or that that would be appropriate. But um, you know, just to make his uh, Poirot stand out. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's it's it it's it feels like a misstep right off the start. And uh, you know, but I guess because things like David Suchet, who played uh, Poirot in so many episodes on on TV and in a version of Murder on the Orient Express that was done for, I guess, the BBC and then a PBS mystery. Uh, so. You know, aside from the original '74 film directed by Sidney Lumet, there's all and there's also a modern day, like a modern day version of this story with a modern day um, Poirot that I think was 
like a straight to video thing. Okay, I think maybe Alfred Molina. Uh, right. I, Actually, that would be a reasonable person. Poirot. Yeah. Well, to, to do it. I, I haven't seen it. I'm sort of mildly curious. It's it's kind of interesting in that this this story because of its the the cast and uh, and all the different characters on the train kind of um, you know asks for a big high powered cast to play all these different characters which we do get in the original 74 film and in this new Kenneth Branagh film. And uh, the Alfred Molina one, of course, is like a bunch of B-list right, <laughs> kind of right. celebrities. It's not quite actors. the same. Not quite the same. It's definitely a lower budget. Uh, you know, they had a train and they didn't have to spend any money on old costumes, I guess. So that's where we went with this. But uh, they did spend a lot of money on this new uh, Kenneth Branagh Orient yeah, Express. Like it, it does feel like a like a, a kind of blockbustery. I mean, aside from the cast, which is... Is there's a lot of there are stars doing things here. Uh, I can't say they all shine. I wasn't feeling much about Johnny Depp, um, and I didn't. I know I'm not a big fan of Josh Gad. No, uh, <laughs> and you know what? And you got they decide to cast Olivia Coleman, who was one of the few sort of below the the title stars that they have gotten. But I suspect that the audience for this film are people that are really going to recognize Olivia Coleman as much as they're going to recognize Judy Dench, and she is a hero of like British. You know, oh, television she's drama. She's yeah. amazing. And, and I, I comedy. Was, yeah, I was really hoping that she would have more to do here, but she doesn't so much. However, uh, I think Daisy Ridley, Willem Dafoe, and especially Michelle Pfeiffer really do the best the best work in this film. They're, they're maybe given a little more to do, but they also just deliver in a way that I really enjoyed. Overall, though, there's a certain sort of mid-tempo inevitability of this. Uh, it just kind of, you know, it's going where it's going. Uh, Brown puts himself front and center quite a lot, and enough that I think accusations of Vanity Project are <laughs> have some base. Uh, you yeah. know, in, in going back and, and re-watching, or sorry, watching for the first time uh, the, the 1974 Sidney Lumet film, uh, it was wonderful to discover how uh, persnickety uh, that Albert Finney's Poirot was, and uh, despite his reasonable mustache, he still wears like nighttime mustache protector <laughs> over his his face, and he wears his crazy uh, snakeskin pajamas, which seems kind of out of character, but it's a it's a wonderful visual wonderful visual thing that I really liked. Well, he's uh, a bit of a fop. Yeah, so. yeah, and he's he's very snobbish, and I, that's the kind of thing I, I really liked about the the '74 version was that Poirot feels general, genuinely put out that he is on vacation and he is on this train and then he has to use his sleuthing abilities to figure out who the murderer is. And he's just annoyed by it. Whereas in Branna's edition, he's kind of, he's more of an action hero. He's more of like, well, I will do this because this yes. is the right thing to do. And, uh, and I just felt that was a little dull compared to, you know, the older version of Poirot being just uh, kind of, you know, oh, I have to do this because this is, I'm the only one who can, and yes, exactly. I'm going to be so inconvenienced by all of this, so I might as well go ahead and figure out who's the, who the murderer is. Yeah, his vanity really plays into it, in, in certainly in the Suchet and, and the Finney ones, uh, you know, that, well, if I, got, I guess I might as well display my brilliance yet again, kind of thing. Mm. And, and uh, there's, there's actually, before Finney, I don't think there's a ton of Poirot uh, um, portrayals. Tony Randall actually plays him. <laughs> Oh yeah, in a in a more comedic vein, I think it's called the Alphabet Murders or the ABC Murders, and it's directed by Frank Tashlin, who made a bunch of Jerry Lewis movies and and worked in animation prior to that, um, and it's actually pretty amusing. And Tony Randall, but you know, camps it up a bit. But you know, certainly Tony Randall can play a a fussy, fidgety, vain uh, 
Belgian as, as well as <laughs> yeah, anyone. Yeah. And it, it's it's worth it's worth seeking out. There's no trains in it, as far as I know. But uh, mm. but if you like the character of Poirot, it's certainly a different take on it. You know, at a time when people may may not have been as familiar with that character. But by the time we get to this version, the Branna version that's out now, uh, you know, people have a pretty good idea of of the character. I mean, Suchet played him in like seventy episodes of the TV show, I think, and plus the the TV movie version of um, Murder on the Orient Express. So. Uh, you know, I guess Brana came into this with like knowing that whoever goes to see this movie is probably going to be well acquainted with that portrayal, and um, you know he's going to have to really pull out all the stops. Yeah, to to, uh, to, to, to do something different. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. But I think he lo- in the process, I think he loses some of the qualities of the character, and yeah. in terms of, certainly the the vanity is there, but it's not like the overriding. No, you know, <laughs> and I I think if he had directed it, it would have been better, and then l- directed an actor to play the lead. I I keep wondering as I watch these versions, like why don't they just choose a Belgian or French actor to play the part? Like, I, I, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I could I could think of. Um, uh, Vincent Cassell or someone like that, uh, you know, very oh, yeah. dashing, but also also plays a lot of smug, self-satisfied people in his films, at least, uh, you know, in some of the yeah. English language roles that I've seen him in. So, <laughs> like Ocean's uh, 12. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So so I think he, he would be someone that uh, I could see doing this. Um, but, you know, no one's listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Ustinov kind of completely made it his own as well. Yes. You mentioned... Um, the uh, the success of the original Murder on the Orient Express in '74, uh, there was a bit of Agatha Christie mania uh, as a result of that because the film was a huge hit, you know, and it was had I mean besides uh, Finney, who else was in that cast? I know that Sean Connery. Oh yeah, Sean Lauren Bacall uh, played one of the main characters. Uh, uh, Richard Widmark was the gangster. Right. Uh, yes. John Gilgood, Jacqueline Bissett, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York, Anthony Perkins, and Ingrid Bergman, who won an Academy Award. That's right. With not, she doesn't really do a lot. I, I, this feels like one of those body of work Oscars, yes. like Al Pacino and Scent of a Woman. Like, you know, you you watch her and you go, okay, yeah, she's good, but but not, it's not remarkable given what what Ingrid Bergman can do and has done. So. Oh yeah, Michael York plays the. Kind of uppity Russian count. Yes. Um, man, there's a character that's underserved in the new version. <laughs> Both him and and uh, his, uh, I guess she's his wife. And then the, they're all. I mean, everybody's kind of connected to this previous kind of kidnapping and murder case, which is what ties everything together. Um, this thing that happened in the past, nowhere near the train, uh, based on the Lindbergh kidnapping, which is kind of an interesting thing uh, in and of itself. But um, you know, some some of the characters really are underserved in this version of the film. The uh, the Lumet version really takes its time to kind of get going and to to build up to the murder, and then I think I think the characters get a little more time to shine in that version than they do here because this is I think Brana gets a little too obsessed with the pacing and and like you know turning it into an action film, like you say with that chase through the trestle yeah. thing. I mean, you get to see Josh Gad get beat up a little bit, so that's that's uh, <laughs> oh, you're not a fan either, point. huh? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, it remind you know this film reminded me a little bit of uh, of Guy Ritchie's uh, Sherlock movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Just in terms of reliance on CGI to create the sort of outside world, yes. but also to try to make it snappier and more palatable for a blockbuster audience. And I, I'm not exactly sure that it worked as well here. I'm actually kind of a, a little bit of a guilty fan of those Ritchie movies, because uh, I know a lot of people don't like them. But uh, but here, yeah, I just like... I, I just, like the first one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but uh, yeah, here, I, I don't know. I just, I, I was like, okay, well, this is perfectly serviceable 
uh, period mystery, but uh, but I, I didn't feel like it really delivered. Yeah, and plus it would, you know, how many Poirot stories are there out there? <laughs> I guess this one, the, just the name, people know it, and it's, you know, oh, it's Murder on the Orient Express. That's supposed to be a good Agatha Christie murder. Yeah, because it's been done like <laughs> three or four times already. Um, you know, at, at least uh, with uh, Christie Mania in the 70s when, um, when Lou Grade bought the rights to some of the other stories and put Ustinov in them. At least they didn't do another remake of Murder on the Orient Express. They picked some of the other the other titles, and it kind of would have been nice maybe if they'd picked one that hadn't been done before. But yeah. maybe there wouldn't be that draw, you know, because it it just uh, the title has that sort of exotic allure, you know, and, yeah. and you've got the whole Insta- Istanbul setting and, and all that. And then they they add like a prologue in Jerusalem. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And they so, they don't get to the whole sort of backstory about the the abduction until later, which is different from the first film. Yes. Um, but but I think Brana Brana leaves it open for a potential franchise here at the end. He there's a little detail at the very end of the film. I was like, okay, that 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 felt very calculated to me. It's yeah, like, was a, there's been a death on the Nile. Like, <laughs> hmm, what could be coming next? So mm-hmm. yeah, maybe maybe they'll return to it. I don't know. I, I I think it's doing well. I mean, I the screening I went to was fairly well attended, and um, you know, there's certainly. You know, there there's a trend that we've noticed in recent years, uh, you know, the exotic marigold hotel trend of of films that do appeal to older audiences who still go to, go yeah, to the movies. Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I actually wouldn't mind seeing a return to the character in another film. Um, you know, I don't know if, uh, hopefully you can maybe see a barber <laughs> prior to that, but but we'll see. As we noted earlier in the episode, the, the romance between uh, movies and trains, of course, goes back to the very dawn of cinema. And uh, there's certainly lots of early examples of, uh, of films that, uh, you know, are obsessed with the technology of, of steam locomotion, you know, prior to diesel coming along. Um, I think of uh, the John Ford Western called The Iron Horse, uh, which uh, is a silent film, one of the probably, probably his best silent film. I think before he became the, the king of the westerns, about the the coming of the locomotive to the frontier, um, and uh, one of my all time favorite films is the General, the Buster Keaton film about uh, an engineer during the American Civil War. Um, he's a uh, he's on the Confederate side, so it's a pro Confederate movie. But uh, you know, the, at the time, it wasn't such a concern. There was the thought that if you made a pro Yankee film, then you were just being a bully. <laughs> I guess they're kicking the South while it's down. I suppose. So uh, so you know, Buster has to. Uh, race behind enemy lines and, and find his train, which has been absconded with by some Yankee spies and uh, get it back across the, the, the lines. And he gets wrapped up in a battle. And then at the end, they actually, uh, they actually blow, up a, they blow up a real train. They send it over a burning bridge and it collapses into a river. And it was a real train and a real bridge. And it was one of the biggest, wow. uh, one of the biggest movie stunts of all time. Of course, you know, in later years, they would do something like that and film it from like a bunch of different angles and, you know, cut it all together in a really exciting way. Here is just one sort of master shot of the train falling into the river. So it was an expensive stunt. Um, and, uh, it does look pretty amazing. It's clearly not a model, but, uh, at the same time, uh, there was no coverage, <laughs> just, just a master shot. Um, and that train stayed in that river for years and years and years afterwards. I think eventually they salvaged it for scrap or something like that. But, um, you know, certainly an ambitious film for Buster. The period recreation is quite remarkable for the time. And uh, and the humor is, it's a little more gentle, a little less slapstick. But, uh, you know, every scene has a, a just great little grace notes of physical action that Buster does. 
that just uh, you know make me return to this film time after time. So if you've never seen Buster Keaton's The General, and uh, you know it's definitely in the top. I'd say it's in like the top five silent movies that you should seek out if, mm. if you at least want to be sort of marginally acquainted with silent films. Uh, the General will be. Uh, be a good one to go with. It's still on my list to see, I have to say. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, and, uh, in, you know, it's it's one of these films that, uh, you know, people have sort of returned to it. Like, I, Akira Kurosawa stole a gag from it for uh, Ron. Hell so, yeah. you know, we, there's a scene in Kurosawa where the, the aging warlord pulls out his sword and the blade flies off. And it's, it's just, Right out of the general. <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's not not where you, you don't expect to see a nod to Buster Keaton in the middle of a grandiose uh, samurai epic based on Shakespeare. But uh, but there you go. <laughs> he made it work. He was uh, versatile, uh, Kurosawa. He was very versatile. Um, and a, a, as we noted, of course, with uh, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, trains seem to be the ideal settings for thrillers. Um, it, there's just something about you know a bunch of people kind of in close quarters. They can't really jump off the train unless they're feeling really agile. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you, you, you know, if there's a murderer loose on the train, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> you're not, uh, you're, no one's safe in their, in their, you know, in their compartment or whatever. And, and so there's always a real threat. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of logistics of spacing, you know, there's only really two directions you can go in. Um, uh, last train to Busan, which uh, I'm jumping ahead, but you know the zombie film where they have to get from car to car uh, with these with these uh, with these zombies in pursuit is plays up that kind of idea really well. Yeah, absolutely. I, that'll might be our, uh, later in our when we get to the present day. Uh, yes, uh, I think that's one we should definitely talk about. So, and and the the British seem to do them really well. I watched uh, Night Train to Munich recently. It was. Um, it was put out by the Criterion Collection. And in fact, if you're in Halifax, there is a copy at our uh, local library that you can reserve and watch to your own content. It's a, uh, and and it's a quasi sequel of sorts. It's it's um, it's actually uh, sort of takes place in this <laughs> we'll call it the cinematic universe of uh, the uh, Charters and Caldecott, who are these two side characters in the Lady Vanishes, the Hitchcock f- f- thriller, which takes place in pretty much all entirely on a train. Um, so these two guys are just two bumbling British uh, upper-class twits, I guess, who kind of stumble into these mysteries. So they show up again in Nazi Germany. Are they played uh, by the same actors? Played by the same actors. Okay. Um, in, in the case of Night Train in Munich, they're kind of auxiliary characters, as they are in Lady Vanishes. And, but they were so popular, they got their own film called Crook's Tour, which is included as a bonus feature on the most recent Criterion edition of Lady Vanishes. So if you... Get a copy of that. You can get an extra Charters and Caldecott uh, feature. It's more of a you know a comedy adventure film. Um, and there was a fourth film, the title of which escapes me at the moment. But um, you know, and they, they were obsessed with cricket. And uh, I remember these characters from the Lady Vanishes. Yeah, and they were some of the more fun kind of characters in the film. Yeah, they were the comic relief. And they bring them back. Um, they're more in action mode in Night Train to Munich. Um, as I get into the plot here, but basically um, a. Uh, a Czechoslovakian scientist who's uh, working on a new type of armor plating, which will revolutionize uh, tanks and 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 presumably planes and things like a new tougher type of steel, more resilient to to bullets and shells and things. Um, he's he's uh, he escapes out of Czechoslovakia and through some clever subterfuge, um, even though he's safely in England, the uh, the Nazi agents are able to kind of spirit him away on a U-boat and take him back to Germany. Um, as well as his um, sprightly, uh, spunky daughter, played by Margaret Lockwood, who 
I believe was also the heroine. It's a completely different character in The Lady Vanishes. Just to confuse things a little bit. (laughs) Um, She's obviously very popular. So she has to team up with uh, a British agent, uh, basically like a a proto-James Bond, played by Rex Harrison, of all people, who we first meet uh, selling sheet music at a seaside resort, a very Brighton-esque kind of British seaside resort, and he's selling sheet music, but he's a he's actually a British agent who's running a safe house uh, on the, just uh, opposite the British naval base. So so basically, he has to go behind enemy line, goes into Germany, posing as a British officer, trying to get this uh, uh, scientist out of Germany and back uh, back to the Allied side. And uh, I love this whole behind enemy line. It actually takes place just days prior to um, Germany invading Poland. So. The, Britain and Germany aren't exactly at war yet, but it's clearly on the horizon. So there, there are these. So it's, it's these. Uh, the British characters are still kind of able to operate within Germany since they're not at war, but it's right around the corner. And um, in fact, I think it happens during the kind of the final chase scene. We find out that uh, Germany has uh, finally invaded Poland and, and the war is on. So you know, it's got that kind of clock is ticking kind of feel to it, and. Uh, Eventually, they do wind up on the train, and it's uh, while they're there, they kind of discover that Rex Harrison, the Nazis figure out that Rex Harrison isn't, in fact, an officer, and so they have to kind of keep up the facade, and uh, and then it, it, it ultimately ends up with a kind of a, a shootout involving a couple of cable cars to Switzerland, from uh, from Austria to Switzerland. So you get trains and cable cars, uh, two uh, two elements of uh, of James Bond films, and uh, you know, and he's and Harrison is great. He, I mean, you know. If you only know him from My Fair Lady, here he is about 20 years prior to that. Uh, he's very energetic and uh, kind of sly. You know, he does. He has the same kind of attitude that he always seems to have, that kind of um, that kind of snobbish attitude. But uh, he's, 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 ult- he's ultimately pretty charming as this kind of cheeky, chappy um, man of many talents and, uh, you know, very proto bond again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the fun of it. Now, um, it does take a little while to, to get going. I, I remember you said you, you weren't quite as fond of this film as well, I was. I, I think I gave it a try watching it some time ago when I had read something fairly flattering about it and, uh, and I couldn't quite get into it, but, uh, but it, you know, I might, I might need to give it a second, a second go. Well, well it does take, I mean, for a film of its time, it does take a little while to set up the whole premise of the scientist on the run and being, you know, operating within uh, the Nazi Germany and, and, um, and finally get to the point where there actually is like, you know, a, basically a chase and some real, some real tension happening. Um, you know, although you do spend a lot of time wondering, well, how is he going to operate you know, as a Nazi and get approval and all this kind of stuff. And it's very clever in how it goes about that. It's also directed by Carol Reed, uh, who directed The Third Man and is one of the, the finest British directors of the 40s and 50s. And um, so it has a real kind of heavy atmosphere, even though even though it's kind of a light adventure film, uh, you know, Carol Reed brings some of that third man menace to some of the sequences. Uh, like with Margaret Lockwood, you feel like she really is in danger for her life in in several instances. And uh, it's... it's um, you know, and it's kind of fun to watch it, you know, in proximity to the Lady Vanishes to see these other characters kind of show up again, just out of, out of the blue. Um, and uh, now I need to find out what that fourth movie is. Yeah. That time. <laughs> so what else is on your list? Did you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, help tell me, tell me, Stephen. What else <laughs> you got there? I, I see you've got your book open. I, I feel like I feel like we're going to have to have a second episode when another train <laughs> movie comes down the pipe because, for example, um, Shanghai Express, not the one that I'm going to talk about. In the next segment, but right. but uh, there, there's the uh, 
the uh, Marlena Dietrich Shanghai Express. With, okay. With uh, Anna Mae Wong and directed by the great Joseph von Sternberg. Very moody. Very. Uh, I believe. I believe it's pre-code. I think it's like 1932. So it's got a lot of exotic intrigue and 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 romance and and so on on a train. Um, and uh, you know, a shot with a lot of moody lighting and haze over the lens and that kind of thing. Definitely, definitely uh, one of the classic Marlene Dietrich films. Um, and quite a few film noirs take place uh, on trains. Uh, the Tall Target, directed by Anthony Mann, is interesting in that it's shot as a film noir, but it's actually about Abraham Lincoln, where Abraham Lincoln is on a train and a uh, basically a, a Secret Service... Um, uh, agent is trying to prevent an assassination from happening. Uh, and the agent's name is played by Dick Powell, who was, you know, previously known as a star of musicals, but then became uh, a star of these gritty, hard-boiled detective films. Uh, his name's actually John Kennedy. Oh, <laughs> yes. Is, yes, I, I remember. And uh, But it's it's very brisk and, and very entertaining. And it's kind of fun to see, a, you know, a period noir. Um, there are a few of those. There's another one set during the uh, French Revolution called Reign of Terror, a.k.a. the Black Book, which is like all the moody shadowing and, and um, charoscuro lighting and all that kind of stuff, but in a French Revolution setting. And that's really worth uh, seeing if you can find a copy. Um, and The Narrow Margin is another one. Uh, it was so good that it was remade uh, in, the, I believe, the late 80s. But the yeah, original 1990, actually. 1990. Yeah. But the original from 1952, um, actually, the remake is pretty good. It's got Gene Hackman uh in, in kind of action mode, he made a few films like that, like the package. Yeah, uh, and he, he you know he's really in a in a kind of a fun, upbeat uh, action mode for a while. And it's there. directed by Peter Hyams, the remake, and he was a he's a sort of a journeyman action yeah, filmmaker, exactly. a genre filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know that I'd recommend it necessarily, but it does have some lovely cinematography in uh, in British Columbia, yes. which at the time was still for Hollywood movies that was still pretty new and it stars both jt walsh and m emmett walsh so you know <laughs> oh wow you know battle to, of the walsh's yeah uh and well, as well as canadian uh stalwart nigel bennett oh. uh the british-born canadian actor <laughs> fresh from night heat <laughs> anyway i'm sorry but you were going to talk about the but, one but from 1952 the original is so good it's it's um it's 71 minutes long like i mean it is it is paced um extremely well with uh, with basically Charles McGraw as a gruff, uh, I believe, FBI agent who is escorting a um, a, a witness, uh, the former mistress of a, of a, I guess, of a gangster um, played by Marie Windsor, who's kind of like the queen of, of film noir between Marie Windsor. If it's got Marie Windsor or Gloria Graham in it, uh, then you, knew, you know you're doing okay. And Marie Windsor uh, is basically the, the woman he's protecting um, uh, to testify against her uh, former lover or husband. I can't remember who was, an, but who was a, anyway, a mobster. And uh, so her life is in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, he figures out that the, the gangster has uh, some of his henchmen are on the train and he's got to keep her safe and get her to this trial on time. And, and so it's, it's pretty basic story. Uh, but it, it's all in how it uses the confined space of the train and, and, uh, you know the the pacing of the locomotive and all like all that, and it's directed by Richard Fleischer, who I guess like Peter Himes was kind of a journeyman, um, but uh, you know when he when he worked well, he worked well. I mean he he's probably best known for uh, I think uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the Disney version uh, from the fifties with um, Kirk Douglas and and James Mason. So you know he just seemed to excel at, at genre pictures, and, and you know he kept working into the sixties and I think into the seventies um, uh, to. Uh, 
lesser degrees of success, but but uh, but at its peak, he made you know big, splashy, entertaining Hollywood movies. But uh, you know, for for a hard bitten action packed noir, he did a great job with the narrow margin. Um, you recommended a film called The Train to me from 1964. <laughs> now, you know, this is the reason I do this podcast. I want to tell you, Stephen. I mean, aside from your deep knowledge of of film history going way back, much deeper than mine, uh, and I get to learn a few things sitting opposite you. Uh, you recommend certain things which you think were gonna are gonna grab me. And now, of course, I know John Frankenheimer. I know this filmmaker. I've seen a number of his films. Certainly, The Manchurian Candidate mm-hmm. uh, back in the '60s, going all the way up to Ronin. Ronin, yeah. Uh, so this guy has a great great body of work somehow the train had escaped me this is not one i'd ever heard of and so you suggested we watch it and uh i couldn't get over how good it was like it is an absolutely beautiful looking movie it's a world war ii thriller about a colonel uh the amazing paul schofield who puts a fortune of impressionist art aboard a train heading for germany and the the you know the the end of the it's the end of the war and uh the allies are about to take Paris back, so uh, it's all going to be over soon. And a small group of French resistance fighters, led by aggressively physical Burt Lancaster, uh, some of the stunts he pulls in this thing is amazing. Like jumping off moving trains or on moving trains or off high places, he is—he's really doing some great stuff here. Uh, he, he and these small group of, uh, of fighters—they—they're uh, trying to stop the train so they can save the art. Um, and there's an amazing sense of location and production design. There's a scene in a rail yard close to the beginning where the train is pulling out and they're blowing up the rail yard. Yeah. Basically, I guess they had actually, this was something they wanted to demolish this old rail yard. And um, the filmmakers came with a big box of dynamite. And <laughs> the spent people, like weeks setting yeah, it up. Yeah, setting it up. And the people, you know, and the, the people of the, who own the property are like, go to it. And so <laughs> they blew it to smithereens using actual dynamite. Uh, and it is, I mean, that's some of the most plausible wartime carnage that I've ever seen. And it's just gorgeous to look at. Every shot is lined up and the camera's moving all the time. There's this gorgeous black and white cinematography and these scenes of locomotives smashing into each other. It's the scale of the thing is as impressive uh, a World War II movie as I've ever seen. And then right smack in the middle of it, Jean Moreau. I mean, I can't, like, (laughs) that's just amazing. Like, I I can't, I can't recommend it. So many great elements in this film. Totally. Yeah, it's based on a true story. I guess in real life, uh, uh, the resistance uh, fighters slash railway workers, they just kept the train kind of circling around Paris. They just kept rerouting it. Instead of like sending it directly to Germany, they were able to kind of... With some red tape or something. Yeah, Yeah. and just basically keep it circling around around the city until the Allies arrived and they could return the paintings back to Paris. But that wouldn't make for a great action film, just watching a train go around and around. Um, So, of course, we have the... Some of the subterfuge where they make the Germans think that they're back in Germany by changing the railroad station signs and and um, yeah, they got a know. real network of uh, of help there because I'm just like, wow, they really th- this would be hard to pull off. <laughs> and the, the great thing about this film is that the mechanics of this every effort to kind of keep the train from crossing the border into Germany it just it's it's so well timed and and. Uh, and, you know, things go wrong, horribly wrong, often from time from time to time. It's it's not like it's um, you can't predict who's gonna get shot or or, or what's gonna happen. Um, you know, nothing goes perfectly as planned, and 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 you know, Lancaster and his cronies have to come up with new things every time. 
And uh, you know, the ingenuity of of the characters is 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 really a highlight of the film. Watching them like come up with ways, like okay, what if okay that didn't work? Now we got to do something else. And uh, right up to the very end, you know, they're, they're coming up with ways to kind of get this train, you, you know, off the rails or, or you know, shunt it back to somewhere else. And and uh, but it doesn't feel mechanical in any way because just because they have so many, you know, humane characters. Uh, I mean, Burt Lancaster, you know, seeing uh, people get mowed down by by the Nazis and you know, still trying to get to his mission and the final confrontation with the the journal uh, the 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 colonel. Um, uh, there's just so many great elements of, of this film, and um, it's funny. It wasn't even supposed to be a Frankenheimer film initially. Yeah, a, I heard that. It was Arthur Penn, apparently, yeah, was the original and director. I, I guess – I don't even know if he got to – I read that he did the, a, a day or two of filming maybe, but but his vision – he you know, he, Lancaster just wanted the story to get into the action as quickly as possible, to get onto that train and get it rolling, and, and – and, Penn wanted to dwell more on the the art and the you know the the politics of stealing all this stuff from from France and so on, which I guess you can get if you if you watch Monuments Men. You yeah, the, see, I, and I definitely you felt can, you the, can uh, see that mo- movie. I, but, I, I felt I felt the parallels there, but I felt like uh, George Clooney would have been better just to remake this one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, but, you know that would that would made more sense, um, and. Uh, and yeah, the Nazis are bad. We learned a <laughs> um, uh-huh. But uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it seems and it seems very kind of modern for its time. And it's from '64, but it feels like kind of a basis for later uh, action films uh, in terms of you know the the troubled hero and and kind of the grittiness of it. It, it feels like a like almost like a black and white version of a film from the '70s, maybe. Um, and it's it's so it's it's amazing how well it stands up and the and it has that kind of sixties black and white where they're experimenting with contrast and it almost has kind of like a hazy sort of more realistic look than than maybe the higher contrast you know uh, film noir or some of the the films that have that sort of hazy paramount look or whatever this 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 film has a, a completely different feel about it that that comes into play I think in other Frankenheimer uh, black and white films if you look at Seconds or Seven Days in May. Um, uh, so that, yeah, there's there's definitely stuff to like about it on every every angle, and Lancaster is just this force of power. He he, he was an he was an actor. It took me a while to kind of warm to because mm-hmm. I was kind of just used to seeing him kind of stock roles, and it wasn't until I got into more and more of his filmography that I really began to appreciate him as an actor and as a physical presence. And uh, you certainly feel it here, like the, the story. Like halfway through the film, he gets shot in the leg, and apparently in, in real life he was he he. Broke, twisted an ankle or something on a golf course <laughs> um, on a day off or something like that. So they, they just wrote it into the script that he had been shot in the leg. And it was, and so that explained the limp, I guess. And, and it was, But it worked perfectly. They must have shot it pretty much in sequence considering they had to roll this train out across the countryside. Yeah. Um, I guess that sort of makes sense that it worked out that way. But Yeah, yeah. he's he's like carved out of granite. Like I, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Burt Lancaster like on Mount Rushmore. Like he just has that kind of face. He just... Uh, yeah, he's 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 astonishing, and I I was so impressed. I I I think uh, the train from 1964. Uh, seek it out, anybody who might be listening who is interested. So when we get into the 70s, train movies are still showing up from time to time. There are disaster movies and thrillers, and uh, there is one that I have always had been close to my heart because I saw it when I was pretty young, and I always enjoyed it. And that's the Silver Streak from 1976. It's the inimitable Gene Wilder 
who plays sort of a milk toast book editor, takes a train from Los Angeles to Chicago because he wants to be bored. And on the train, he meets uh, Jill Clayburgh. And, of course, they fall for each other. The first 20 minutes basically is like a romantic comedy. It's how they meet, and they have a lovely evening together, and it might be the best part of the whole movie. And then the thriller plot kicks in, and Wilder's character George thinks he's witnessed a murder, and he gets thrown off the train by Richard Keel, basically revisiting Jaws from the James Bond movies. He's got complete with the steel dentures. Um, and the film turns out to be quite a lot of fun as George gets... Framed for murder, spends all his time either being thrown off the train or trying to get back onto the train and connecting with uh, Jill Clayburgh's character named Hilly Burns. Uh, and bright points include Richard Pryor, who plays a character named Grover. Now, of course, uh, Wilder and Pryor would make a number of films together, some of them better than others. I think this might be the best one. Stir Crazy is pretty good, um, though some of the some of the politics may seem a little shocking at <laughs> yes. this point, looking back 30 years uh, or 40 years now, I suppose. Um, but uh, there is this great scene where Richard Pryor tries to disguise Gene Wilder, maybe the whitest guy in the world, as a black dude, and that's kind of hilarious just to see his attempts um it also stars patrick mcguin who is uh you know has this great tradition of um who ca carries on this great tradition of stylish british actors going to hollywood to play the villain in a big budget spectacle uh and there's a great score by henry mancini uh so yeah it, it's maybe dated in some respects but uh silver streak is still still good fun and it's like uh, speaking of bond it's also got clifton james who played uh Sheriff Pepper in two uh, Live and Let Die and the Man with the Golden oh, Gun. Oh, right. I forgot about him. Also shows up. Um, this actually predates uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Does so, it? Oh, okay. So Richard, Richard Keel had, had been around as kind of a heavy and character actor for, for since the so, so mid-60s. So the, the Spy Who Loved Me borrowed him and his steel dentures as the villain for Bond? I guess so. Man, I didn't realize that. <laughs> Whoa. That's kind of shifted my worldview a little bit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's... Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Ned Beatty shows up uh, as, as kind of a, a bit of comic relief along the way. Uh, not like you'd need any in this film with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor on board. But uh, um, and then uh, of course uh, Richard Pryor keeps getting thrown off, or uh, but Gene Wilder keeps getting thrown off the train. I yeah, recall, like in getting back on and catching up with it, and um, you know, which is I love that the fact it's like is he going to get back on this friggin' train? Um, uh, and yeah, it, it did have that kind of. It, Old-fashioned kind of romance and and suspense, but uh, with with a '70s twist on it. And uh, I watched it not too long ago and, and found it it really stands up. It's definitely one of those films I can throw on when I'm in a mood and I don't know what I want to watch. Yeah, and enjoy it because it, it presses so many buttons. And Jill Jill Clayburgh is lovely, of course. She was at her peak around this time. And um, yeah, it was like this one and Unmarried Woman, and then the uh, football movie Semi Tough. She oh, was yes. great in that. Yeah. Uh, so if, I mean, if you've never seen Silver Streak, it. it I remember it used to be like one of those ABC Sunday night movies of the week. Uh, quite, It showed up on TV quite a bit. Um, I have a feeling the scene where Richard Pryor puts Gene Wilder in blackface probably prevents it from being shown on TV a whole lot these days. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like, yeah, it's, it's problematic for sure, but I, I guess there's there are some laughs to be had just by Gene Wilder completely selling it. Well, here's the thing. Like, I, you know, like, Blackface is not cool. You should never do it. Uh, but because it actually kind of makes fun of that and of this, that old showbiz tradition and kind of turns it on its head. Um, and, uh, and and Richard Pryor makes it work by being completely embarrassed by the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. I I think in, in the context of this film, it, it works. But, I mean, you, you really have to bend over backwards to kind of 
pull it off. And, and these guys uh, do it fairly effortlessly. But it's not the sort of thing I think anybody can really get away with. Um, even Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, that's that's a good question. I don't know. But I, I feel like I that was know. kind of a nod back to this, perhaps. Yeah, maybe, maybe it was. Um, I, I want to just give a nod to speaking a nod of nods to another Burt Lancaster picture called The Cassandra Crossing. It's not a great movie, but it is in this genre, and I again have some soft spot for it. Uh, it's from '76, and it's a disaster movie about a uh, uh, a terrorist who has a strain of a of a, of a very infectious uh, disease. And he gets on on a train heading from Geneva to Stockholm. The American military man, played by Lancaster, is trying to contain the situation. Meanwhile, on this on the train are a host of famous or semi-famous faces, including Sophia Loren, Richard Harris, Ava Gardner, Martin Sheen, O.J. Simpson, and Lionel Stander. Uh, so, in some ways, this one is probably the most like. Um, Murder on the Orient Express of all the movies we we're talking about today. Um, it's it's not a good movie. In fact, all right, if I was going to be really honest, it's laughably bad. But there is some <laughs> entertainment value. There's a great Jerry Goldsmith score, and Ann Turkle sings "I'm Still on My Way," which is this like kind of cheesy <laughs> ballad within a train car full of hippies. Uh, it's directed by George Cosmatis, who directed Escape to Athena, a film we talked about in our Prisoner of War podcast, as well as Rambo: First Blood Part Two, Cobra, and tombstone and uh apparently a little bit of trivia on the cassandra crossing tom mankowitz who worked on the script is reported to have dubbed it the towering germ uh, <laughs> and it is available to be seen on youtube if you want really want to check oh, it geez. out not not a great looking copy but it's there well speaking of laugh would be bad i should uh sign on for a night train to terror which is a film that i was sadly unaware of for many years it's from mid 80s 1985 and the folks at Vinegar Syndrome, which is a great uh, DVD Blu-ray release company who dredge up these old exploitation and grindhouse pictures and, and restore them as much as they can. They're usually dealing with prints and not from like archival negatives or anything like that. So they still look like an old grindhouse print a lot of the time. But they, they, uh, they find these films and they put them out. And, um, you know, some of them are kind of going to softcore territory or what have you. But this this was a real gem. I, I found it for five bucks somewhere. And... Uh, it actually turned out to be a lot of fun. It's um, it's basically uh, an anthology type, uh, you know, like a creep show or whatever type anthology horror movie. VHS or one of those. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's uh, it starts off on a tr- the wraparound segments are on a train as God and the Devil um, argue over the fate of some of the characters that we see in the vignettes, and uh, it, it just goes all out. It's it's got like in another car on this train, which is like going somewhere from like the earthly realm into uh, the netherworld. Um, there's like a new wave band that plays this in- song incessantly over and over again throughout the movie, and they're fairly hilarious with breakdancing. And, um, you know, there's like demons popping out of out of nowhere in, in these storylines that don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, there's some stop-motion animation, which is sort of amateurishly done, but kind of charming in its own way. It's certainly not Ray Harryhausen level, but it's, it's, it's kind of amusing whenever it pops up. Um, the, the quality of acting goes from uh, Ferdy Maine, who plays God, who's like a great British character actor, to like your local community theater, uh, <laughs> uh, let's put on a play style acting. And, uh, and, and, and Richard Maul from Night Court shows up with hair to play two different characters. So it's kind of fun seeing him show up uh, in, in something other than playing Bull the, uh, the bailiff on, uh, on Night Court. So uh, it's, and it's cheesy. It's so 80s. It's like 80s to the core. Um, and with, some, with a fair bit of gore and, and uh, some 
ludicrous uh, character acting on, uh, as well. So uh, if you get a chance to see Night Chain to Terror, it's uh, it's not terribly terrifying, but it it it's you know you definitely slip into mystery science theater mode um, as as it progresses because of the dialogue and the, the lack of logic in any of the stories. Really, really twist your head around. And amazingly, it's written, or the script is credited to um, Philip Jordan, who was, an, I believe, an Oscar-winning screenwriter who was famous for, most famous for a lot of really great westerns huh. in the 1950s. So I don't know if this is like something they pulled out of his junk drawer or, or where they got this script from, but uh, it's, it's definitely not his best work. Uh, and who knows what they did to the script uh, once they got their hands on it, once the, uh, the filmmakers did. But, but it, it's, it's, it's a fun watch. It's a fun movie to watch with a group. And um, it, it, if you get the DVD or the Blu-ray, there's actually like two commentaries and an extra bonus feature, which I, I think uh, one of the segments they expanded into a feature of its own. Uh, so, you know, give Night Train to Terror a chance, knowing full well that it's going to be one of the, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a The Room level bad film going <laughs> in. But it really, it really, like every scene just gives you multiple opportunities to make fun of it. So I, I, I recommend it on, it's definitely on uh, high on the so bad it's good uh, level. Very good, very good. Well, I can see from the time, Stephen, that we are starting to close yes. in on our, our destination. Um, so I know there are more movies we wanted to talk about before we wrapped up here. Uh, what do you uh, got? Well, you know, I, Runaway Train, we talked about in our, our Prisoner Escape movie uh, uh, podcast, and I, I don't think that I need to go into too much more detail here other than to say that it's uh, it's an amazing film. If anyone hasn't seen it, it is truly wonderful film about uh, uh, a couple of hard asses who uh, get on a train and and then it uh, it goes into the wintry wilderness uh, as the uh, their um, uh, warden chases after them by helicopter. Uh, and it it's one of those movies that can't really be be entirely understood by by talking about the plot. This is a movie of existential intensity and it is terrific um now you also saw the great train robbery this is a movie i saw ages ago and i can't really speak to it but i <laughs> remember it being uh, a lot you know cool sean connery and donald Sutherland together but otherwise uh, a little bit of a slog well ag- again like night train to munich it takes a little while to get going but once they're on the train and the robbery is taking place it's it's actually a pretty good heist movie on uh, aboard a fast-moving train of course it's based on a real train robbery that happened in the 1800s and uh, Sean Connery uh, teams up with, uh, he, he's basically the idea man, and, and Donald Sutherland is the, the safe cracker. And they come up with this idea of stealing gold that's uh, destined for Crimea and the troops that are fighting there, and they want to steal it. And, um, uh, and famously, there's a, it's in the trailer, so it's not really a spoiler, but at one point the judge is asking Sean Connery, he's like, why did you want to rob this train? And he said, because I wanted the money. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great line, and Connery just sells it. He's in full-on, uh, he's in full-on sort of wisecracking, um, uh, you know, prankster kind of mode here. And uh, he's, he's, he's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, one of, one of the better post-Bond films that he's in. Uh, Leslie Ann Down plays his, uh, his, uh, his lover and, and also kind of uh, accomplice in a lot of this stuff. She wears a lot of disguises and tries on a lot of different accents to kind of dupe some of the men from the railroad so they can get the keys to the safe. And that's a lot of fun to watch. And she's... she's uh, very becoming throughout the film, and uh, and the train stuff is actually pretty compelling. They they got a historic railway in Ireland, I think, to to be the sort of Victorian era train, 
And uh, and Connery did a lot of stuff of running around on top of a moving train and and climbing down from cars and while it was in in motion and. Uh, apparently, uh, while they were making it, they were only supposed to be going about 35 miles an hour on the train. And when they actually went back and looked at the film and kind of worked it out, the film was, the train was probably going about twice that speed. Okay. Wow. And, you know, Connery didn't realize how much danger he was actually in, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you do clearly he's, he, you know, the train is moving and he's not wearing any guy wires that get CGI'd out later. It's, 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 it's pretty spectacular. Huh. But they, they do spend a lot of time setting up the heist and, and the mechanics of how they're going to get the keys and get onto the train and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but it's, it's still pretty compelling stuff. And then, you know, when, when one of, one of their, one of their, uh, sidekicks, uh, you know, turn, you know, uh, tries to turn them in, uh, you know, you see how cruel it can really be. So the, there is a bit of a nasty edge to it. It's directed by Michael Crichton. It's probably one of the better films that he directed, um, you know, based on his own novel. And it does have that kind of real life, uh, tang to it. So, okay. Well, seeing. maybe I'll give it another try another day. Um, we didn't get to talk about throw mama from the train, which <laughs> seems like a real crime. And you also wanted to discuss Shanghai express from the late eighties, as well as train to Busan, which I'm just going to say train to Busan, terrific zombie movie on Netflix. Now check it out. It's, it's awesome. All set on a train, but, but what did you want to say about Shanghai well, express in the 30 seconds we've got? Well, quickly, Sh- Shanghai express was a kind of a, a uh, kung fu movie all-star extravaganza from the late 80s. Uh, Sammo Hung stars and directs. And uh, Yuan Biao, uh, who is also his compatriot, is one of the three dragons with Jackie Chan, who's not in the film. But um, basically, the, they're, they're trying to lure a train to this uh, town in the middle of nowhere and get the passengers to come and spend their money in the town. Um, but there's also a, a, a gang of... Uh, uh, of uh, villains who want to rob the train and rob the rich people on board. Uh, Cynthia Rothrock, who is a female kickboxing champion, shows up and she has a great fight scene with, with, with Samo. She made a few films in uh, in Hong Kong where she got to cut loose a bit more than she did in the North American films. It's kind of a shame that she didn't continue in that career, but um, you know she's good at, good in the films that she made in uh, in in China. Although I got to say, a lot of this was actually shot in Alberta. <laughs> Apparently, they you know they got a historic railway there. And uh, shot some stuff up in the in the mountains and so on. So it actually has kind of interesting location work and maybe some better production values than you often see in the Hong Kong action films. Uh, but it, there's a lot of real buffoonish comedy as well that is, has not aged so well. So that's been Lends Me Your Ears, another episode, our 50th episode, and we took you down the tracks to train movie town, and uh, thank you very much for listening to us. Uh, Now, if you want to reach us, we can be found at Facebook. Probably the easiest way to find us is on Facebook, on our Facebook page. We're also available by email, lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com, and on Twitter, at lendsmeyourears. I have my own Twitter account via my blog and it's at flaw in the iris and steven you've got a twitter account as well at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e we have a patreon account if you would like to support our efforts talking about movies and uh we'd we'd really appreciate that uh on itunes of course is where you can find us and on stitcher and if you would like to leave a review by all means please do we can be heard every second tuesday at 5 30 on ckdu in halifax nova scotia and many many thanks to them and to our production magic people at Village Sound. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. 
Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 